You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BNH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Greetings and welcome to the BNH Photography Podcast. Today we welcome to the studio photographer and Panasonic Lumix Global Ambassador, Shiv Verma. Shiv will be talking to us about his impressions using the Panasonic Lumix S1 full-frame mirrorless digital camera, as well as other cameras and lenses in the Lumix system. We're also going to be discussing Shiv's work as a photographer and educator and get a sense of how he juggles many styles of photography to keep his business going strong. As you might have guessed, Shiv is here to help us promote our B&H photography podcast, Panasonic Lumix S1 Sweepstakes. If you haven't already done so, we encourage you to follow the link in our show notes or visit the B&H photo Facebook page to enter. Not only are we giving away a full-frame S1 with a 24 to 105 millimeter lens, a second lucky listener can win a Lumix G95 mirrorless camera with a 12 to 60 millimeter lens. All that said, let's get on with the show. Welcome, Shiv. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's nice to have you here. The first thing we'd like to ask you about is a quote that appears on the first page of your website, and I'm quoting now. The aim of every artist is to arrest motion, which is life, by artificial means and hold it fixed so that a hundred years later, when a stranger looks at it, it moves again since it is life. It's a terrific quote that you would think comes from a photographer, but it's actually a quote by the writer William Faulkner. What does this mean to you? Well, I think, in my opinion, any photograph has to have a story. And the ability of a good photographer is to create that story in that image. And no matter when it's looked at, that story must pop back out. Mm -hmm. And if you can look at an image and realize that there is emotion, it evokes something, it speaks to you, or it tells you, I think you've achieved photography. Okay. All right, we're done. Let's okay. go. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now, let, let me ask you, you know, you're involved in a lot of different types of, of photography. You, you do a lot of commercial work. You do fine art work. You do a lot of technical work. Yes. Can you apply that same quote and the same thought process to some of the more technical things you do? Like, for instance, there, there are some very precise, exotic macro work that you work on that you wouldn't necessarily call it fine art. No, no. And actually, a good example, I mean, Products may not tell a story, but a product, if it evokes emotion, it induces mm-hmm. purchase. Yeah. Well, there are some beautiful yeah. product photography. Yes. I mean, so, a good example, Apple advertising. What, it's you a look picture at, of a phone okay. and you want to eat the darn thing. Of course. And, 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 and you look at, you know, jewelry. Yeah. yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Jewelry is not purchased because it looks good on somebody's finger. It's purchased because it good, looks good on paper. And then it's the demand. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's there are different kinds of emotional responses, and product photography has a different emotional response. It's not necessarily a storytelling response, but it's a different emotional response. And again, it's the yeah. viewer. If Absolutely. you have somebody who's yes. into design and into, say, a more creative mindset, they'll be looking at a product say, and they'll admire the design of it. Some people just want to know if the phone takes calls. That's the end of it. It's a phone. Yes. Um, I think it's interesting, too, in in the idea of the technical work that you do, 
which obviously may fly in the face of this idea of emotion and, and storytelling. Mm-hmm. But to the viewer who knows what they're looking at, if it's photographed right, it is telling a story, a story yeah. of how to use something, yeah. a story of what it's worth, what it's value, its size. All those kind of things are part of the story. Well, and it's and, and we all actually yeah. interpret stuff our own ways anyway. We, right. you, the three of us or four of us could look at the same photograph and we'll watch, yeah. our walkaways are different. Yep. Yeah. So let me ask you, do you... Do you think about this process when you're photographing? Are you someone that kind of takes your time or are you somebody who, who can shoot very quickly? Because I, I know you do a, a range of work and you're out shooting birds. Obviously, you have to set up, but then there's a lot of like, you know, I imagine continuous blasts going on to get the shot you want. So how does this kind of these ideas kind of come to play in your work? Well, there's, there's two things. Uh, when you're doing uh, nature, wildlife, living subject matter, that's you know, good to fly away, move, whatever. Yeah. Um, you have to... Number one, understand bird behavior, understand animal behavior, and anticipate what it is that they're going to do. And then, yes, you use a burst to to capture that defined moment that you really want. Mm-hmm. But that's part of the process. The rest of it is off the series of images that you took, how do you color out the ones that don't have Mm. A responsiveness. Yeah, you, know, you, you remove those images, and then you keep the ones that depict the story. Mm-hmm. So it, that's the process when it is, you know, animals, birds, etc. If you're if you're looking at uh, you know the concept of shooting landscapes, you can go to a location and you're waiting for the light, and it doesn't happen. Mm. Well, you don't now take pictures for the sake of taking pictures. You go away, and you come back again. Uh, it may not be the same day. It may not be, you know, for the next month. It may not be for a year. So, and by the that, way, that's something you cannot do when you're doing wildlife photography. No. Saying, "Well, there's nothing happening right now. I'm going to come back in a half hour because you don't know when that bird's getting that fish." True. So, landscapes have yeah. a whole different approach. A lot of planning, um, a lot of location scouting. You know, understanding direction of light, understanding where and when it's going to happen, and then. Atmospheric conditions. I mean, I hate blue skies. <laughs> so yeah, we all hate blue skies. Yeah. So 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 that's the kind of thing that you wait for, and you know, you you then translate into what your mind wants to depict, and then you photograph it. Sometimes you go through a lot of time and effort and energy to get to this certain spot, mm-hmm. and say, not necessarily knowing if it's going to be good or not, or say you're going to get there saying, I know I'm going to be there for the best light of the day. And it turns out clouds came in or something else. There's, there's all kinds of variables that happen. Do you just call it off or do you say, okay, this is what I'm given. What can I get from this? Because I mean, I, I, I know I've shown up at, at locations at the at when a hurricane is just starting to hit and little drops are coming down and I can still pull off a cover because we just worked with what we had. Do you, well, would you work through that? Or, and if you do, at what point it, do you say it's just not good? It depends. I mean, if there is something that is possible and is usable, then maybe yes. But if not, I don't have a problem walking away. I mean, I've been, just as an example, I've been to Iceland 16 times. Why do you go there 16 times? Now, did you walk away any of those times? No. Oh, yeah, many, <laughs> many of okay. them. I mean, you walk away because the weather can be really bad, so right. you have to walk away. Or you walk away because it just didn't look okay. So, I mean, I do workshops over there. That's what right. know, it, it, the whole point is. But walking away is never an issue. 
I think if you if you learn to walk away, you might even make better pictures. Mm. I think it's a great point. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point. Let me ask though, because you do such a wide range of work, what carries over from, let's say, you know, a shot of a bird where you may have shot 100 photos just to get that one, or when you're doing a product photo or a portrait, for example. I mean, and we did talk about storytelling. Maybe that's what's at the heart of all of this, but are there things that you take from one genre to the next or things that you totally throw away when you're working at in one genre? I think light always plays a very important role. And, and that, irrespective of what it is that you're photographing, you've got to understand that. You've got to know how your subject is going to be lit. Mm -hmm. Even birds. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you don't say, oh, there's a bird over there. Let me go photograph it. Well, there's a bird over there. Where's the light? Which direction is it coming from? Are you going to see detail? Are you not going to see detail? You know, there's a lot of people who will say, well, photograph a bird if the sun's behind your back. Okay. But am I going to get further detail? Likelihood, no. So it's a good way to teach how to get a basic image, but it's not the good image that you're going to get when you do that. So to me, you know, light direction, the color, the quality, and, you know, no cliche intended, but even the quantity of light makes a big difference as to where and how you shoot. And, and my whole point is move away. Decide on another location. Go somewhere else if it's not right. Don't struggle. Because what you're going to end up doing is you're going to struggle, you're going to shoot, and then you're going to discard. <laughs> you're disappointed. Well, when you're doing things like uh, uh, birds in particular, mm -hmm. they don't hang around too well, unless it's a bird we're just waiting for the little fish to come by on the edge of the marsh. But often you don't have the option of moving to the other side of the bird. Or, or whatever the animal might be because your movement alone is going to scare the thing away. And you may not have the physical ability to get there because of, you know, rocks or whatever, water. Um, and when you're out shooting wildlife, you, you could look for a good setting and wait for something to happen. But if something's happening in the other direction, you have to really kind of work with what's there and hope that, like, again, that little bit of backlighting just mm -hmm. lights up the feathers and picks something up because sometimes that's all it takes well, completely to agree. make the yeah, picture. Yeah, I completely agree with you, but you still have to work the subject. Oh, sure. And if you are able to move to the other side, do. Don't waste your time standing in a location just because the bird is there. You're not going to get what you want. And to me, moving is critical. You know, in, in, in nature wildlife photography, there's a whole lot of peas. And you know what they all work for? Patience, 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 patience. That's it. <laughs> I was wondering where that was going. <laughs> so, yeah, you have to have patience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. That kind of leads me into some of the thoughts on macro photography, which I know is a, a specialty of yours. Mm -hmm. uh, do the same rules generally apply when you're doing macro work? And, and, and how do you approach, let's say, a, a subject, uh, an animal subject for that matter, in macro, you might otherwise... Uh, differently than you might, you know, in the wild, let's say, or uh, with a long lens and a bird. But, I mean, the very term macro says it's going to be much more difficult. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, you're going to be that much closer to the subject and yeah. it's going to be skittish. It's going to fly away. So the opportunities of getting exactly what you want when you want are far reduced. So 
More, yeah. pa- more I mean, patience. Basically. A lot more patience, <laughs> a lot more patience, and I think a lot more technique. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you're doing birds, for instance, you're not lighting them. It's, it's, you know, God's doing the lighting for you, you're just capturing whatever is there at the time, for the most part. I mean, it's seldom that you'd, you'd pop off a flash or anything, unless it's a, unless it's a setup. Where you have well, no, no, you can you can in certain situations pop flash just to get a little catch light in the eyes. There's nothing you know sort of preventing you from doing right. that. Um, you're not lighting the subject completely. You're just using light to add. Um, you know, we, in portraiture you call it fill lighting, and here yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's kind of similar to that. Yeah. But all you want is getting a little bit of that glint in the eye mm-hmm. uh, to make the image pop. So f- the use of flashes is very common. Okay, but yeah. with macro, would it be more common? Because you know, with oh, macro, be, now, now all of a sudden it's it's literally within arm's reach, whatever it is you're photographing, and you can. There are some wonderful little lights specifically for macro. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you make use of a lot of those or yes. any of those? Okay. In fact, one um, one of the key things with macro photography, unless you're doing stacking, which you would typically do with. Uh, inanimate objects mm-hmm. when you're shooting macro inanimate. But animate objects, you are going to basically look for as much depth of field as possible. So you're going to close down your aperture and where goes the light? Now you've got to add light. And these little devices like, uh, you know, the Cube products, uh, Lytra makes them, uh, Loom Cube makes them. There's, there's pl- and even some that sit on top of the camera with little scissors and you can, you know, scissor arms and you can actually move them around from camera well, actually, position. Well, actually what I have for my macro rig now is I keep the camera mounted on, on a ball head on a platypod. Right, okay. And then I have uh, goosenecks mm-hmm, mm-hmm. on the platypod. So they, the whole thing is one rig. It moves as one it's solid object, right? Gotcha. You're not fiddling with different things. The lights are basically focused in on the closest focusing distance. That's what you typically want to use to get the maximum magnification. Mm-hmm. So everything is kind of preset. Now you physically move your body to get things in focus and capture them. You are, in essence, creating a small studio when you're doing Absolutely. this. Absolutely, yes. There's yes. No, this is product yes. photography. It this, might try to crawl yeah. away, but it's it's the same thing. It, it's it's that's what it is. And and, and at times, I mean, I've uh, you know created backgrounds. Um, you know, if the background is too close, and I know that it's going to be um, obtrusive because of you know the subject matter being so close to the background, mm-hmm. and it's going to be all in focus. Well, move the background. You know, I use things like fishing line to tie it up around the leaves and just pull them away so that you give more distance between subject and the background. But you just said something that was important the way you take string and you tie it away. And that's important if anyone's ever, if you haven't done macro photography out in the woods, in the wild and stuff like that, don't break branches. Oh. Push if them it, out of the way. Do, do little yeah, things. That, that's yeah, a great yeah. point. It's part of ethics. Yes. You know, if, if you are a nature wildlife photographer, the first thing you better learn is ethics. Mm-hmm. Don't disturb don't clip things just because you want to get a better image. Uh, same thing with, I mean, you go to places like um, Florida. The birds are within arm's reach. And there may be a nest, birds on the nest. You're not going to break the branches just because you want a picture of the eggs or the, you know, the hatchlings. No. So 
Ethics is number one. Leave things the way you found them. Yes. And if you want to pull, as I said, pull the background away, release it so that they come back to where they were originally. Gotcha. Yeah. You, looking at your work, you you have a zillion specialties. You do a lot of different kind of things. You're not a specific, we're talking about a lot about bird photography. You're not a bird photographer per se. That's one of, what, 12 different kind of topics that you mm -hmm. have on your site. What is the first thing that you started photographing? What caught your eye that said, I need to take pictures of that? Well, at 11, when I first started okay. taking pictures, it was flowers. Mm. So the camera that I was given by my grandfather was fortunately a Leica. And good grants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and his, his thing, I mean, he, he was an amazing man. I mean, he had seven doctorates. And his doctorates were in zoology, botany, fishery. And so it was all nature, wildlife sure. type related. And he had the most incredible garden. So, of course, when you have all those flowers, that's what you get attracted to. And that's where you start photographing. And in flowers, there are insects. So now it became, okay, so shoot the flower as a flower. And now what about that insect? Now you want to look for macro lenses. Unfortunately, there were no macro lenses back then. So you use bellows. Right. And you yeah, just increase. Like it's probably one of the worst cameras to get into yeah, close-up with. It's, I know. It's doable, but... Doable, but oh not boy. easy. No. Not easy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, today, it's, it's a godsend what we have. I oh, mean, yeah. For macro photography, there's What's your, unbelievable. What are your macro lenses in general? What do you use, especially when you're out in the field? When I'm out in the field, uh, typically now I've been using the uh, 45mm Leica uh, on a Panasonic G9. Occasionally I will use the 30, but I find the 45 to be exceptionally sharp. And, you know, when, when you're looking for high magnification, you're also looking for no distortion. And that lens is just exceptional. Because mm. it's slightly telephoto. Again, the 45 millimeter you're talking about has the equivalent focal length of a 90 millimeter right. lens because you're shooting in micro yes. four thirds for our yeah. listeners who might get yeah. confused about this. And so the 30 two, millimeters is the equivalent of a 60. Right. It's okay. a two-time crop factor. Mm -hmm. So you multiply your focal length by two to get an equivalence right. of full frame. And now, you know, there are a lot of um, extension tubes that you can buy. And you can increase the magnification. So that helps. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, they're third-party extension tubes, but uh, they're, they're fine for mic uh, micro four-thirds cameras. I wanted to follow up a bit on, on Ellen's point about just the range of things that you do. And to and maybe to ask, how is that an advantage and how can that be a disadvantage? You know, Because obviously many of us are taught, okay, you have to focus on something. You have to specialize in something. If you want to sell your work, if you want to get your name out there, it has to be in certain area of photography. Now, how, how, how has that worked in your case? And, and do you even feel that that's true? There was, there was a point in time, I'd say about 10 years ago, where... It was, oh, what do you specialize in? Mm -hmm. And I say, I generalize. <laughs> Today I find that being a generalist is much more advantageous because I can do most anything in photography. Yeah. I'm not limited to portraiture and studio lighting. 
I know how to light small subjects, big subjects, cars, you name it. Mm -hmm. So to me, I think being a journalist gives me much more of an opportunity to photograph and be requested to do photography in any genre. Right. And I'd much rather it be that way than be pegged to, oh, he's only a macro photographer or, or all he does is, you know, nature, wildlife. Mm -hmm. uh, I think photographers should be open to all and every type of genre. Mm -hmm. And and how does that work in the sense of, of finding clients and, and, and looking for work? And, and do, have you found any any disadvantage in that sense where people would say, you know what, um, I want to have my my corporate portraits done by, by this guy because his work looks great. But mm -hmm. someone would say, well, he's really more of a, a wildlife guy. The one thing I don't do is what I get requested for the most, and that's weddings. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm about to say, I didn't see much of that on your site. Well, what, I mean, if you could choose, what, what, what's your favorite? I mean, I, I don't want to put you on a spot here, and obviously there's joys in all kinds of photography, but if you, uh, you, know, if you could pick and choose, would you be out in the field uh, looking for birds or, or the landscapes or, or the product work you do? Um, birds and landscapes, primarily, yes. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really good is that when the weather is bad, there's enough to do indoors. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's um, wonderful. That's a question that I had for you um, related to the fact that you do, you're, you're, you know, I know it's a trivial uh, statement to say, but a jack of all trades. Mm -hmm. And again, there are some people who are out there in the market who say, if you're a jack of all trades, you're, not, you're dead in the water because they can't identify what kind of photography you are. But again, it is possible to be a generalist and survive. Do you have a, a portfolio that you show to people, or do you have category uh, portfolios that you'd show? I'd say categories. Okay. Yeah. All right. It really depends upon who is asking for what. I mean, there's no point in my showing somebody my bird portfolio if they want me to photograph exactly. diamonds. You know, well, by so. the way, that's not always true. Because back in the day, I was a boat photographer and I had the head mm -hmm. of a major multinational company hire me. He was at first, he was a boat nut. But he said, if the guy could photograph rowboats, I can't imagine how good he could be with like landing gear for jets. You're, 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 you're right. <laughs> and, and, and it does because when, when you go to my website, you see everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You have subcategories of yeah, categories. So, so if you see everything... Um, it can lead to one, right? And that one is, he knows how to photograph. So now my question to you is, are, are do you have people calling you specifically for any of the, just for those specializations in where they need landscape, they need animals, they need products, or do you have any clients that call you for a range because, of the, because you are able to do anything? Do you have regular clients that call you for you know, portraits and, you know, industrial mm, stuff no, and this and that. No. So your clients are all very targeted in that yeah. sense. Okay. I mean, the, the, the thing was, what did lead to one client requesting something that I never thought I'd ever be asked to photograph was windows, doors and windows. A door and window manufacturer says, I need my doors and windows photographed. I said, why are you calling me? And they said, because you photograph chemical and biomedical equipment. So you know how to photograph glass. Right. And <laughs> it struck me that 
Glass is not easy to photograph. No. And I get called. And now the whole question is, all right, we're going to go to your place and shoot. You're going to bring the stuff to my place. They said, oh, no, this is too big to carry to your place. So you're going to have to come and shoot over here. Now it means, you know, bring lights and whatever. So, yeah, that's that's the kind of response that I would give you is that when they know you can shoot, they'll call you for the weirdest things. By the way, you were very fortunate in that because the person who made that decision actually understood what the problem is rather than saying, oh, it's just windows and glass. Anybody can do that. Is well, they, they tried with four photographers oh, before okay. that. So, no, so they actually learned. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. That works. I, I get that now. Okay. Well, we're going <laughs> to jump pretty soon and talk about uh, you know the S1 and, and some of the other Lumix cameras. But can you kind of tell us how you how you got to the Lumix system? Because obviously, well, as you mentioned, you started shooting Leica, and I'm sure you've worked through all the systems. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you're a, an educator and you run workshops, so you must know the range of cameras that are out there. What was the first camera to introduce you to the system? So, it, this is this is a strange one, but. <laughs> Can't scare us. <laughs> <laughs> Back in uh, 2013, um, I was working on my book on time lapse. Which we want to talk about soon, too. Yeah. Yes. And I had asked a bunch of manufacturers to provide me with things that they believed that they had, which would help me understand how their products would fit into the world of time-lapse. And I was using Canon, and Canon had nothing in the camera to do time-lapse. You had to use an intervalometer. And then going around, I was introduced to Tom Curley from Mm -hmm. Panasonic. Sure. And he said, we have time-lapse built in the camera. And I said, well, what kind of camera is this? And they said, it's a Micro Four Thirds, and it's called the Panasonic GH3. Let me send you one. So he sent me the camera with a couple of lenses, and I tried it. And I said, this is pretty good, because the time-lapse feature really worked exceptionally well. And so I said, okay, can I keep this camera a little bit longer? I'd like to take it in my next trip to Iceland and do some time-lapse of the Aurora. That's the same line I use all the time. <laughs> and he said, yeah. But I found that the GH3 did a good job. It could have been better. But when the GH4 came out, it was like night and day. And then I started using Panasonic cameras and then got invited to be an ambassador. And that's how it really started. Mm. So it was the right tool for your needs? It's exactly what it is? It's the right tool for my needs. It, uh, it serves everything that I'd like to do with nature and wildlife because it has... Actually have an advantage in a sense, right? I have a huge advantage, both from the size of the camera, the speed and performance, and the reach of the lenses. Yeah. But for a lot of the other stuff... I was missing a full-frame format. Well, now that gap's been bridged. And, you know, the, the S-series, exceptional. 
We're going to take a short break and we come back and we'll be talking more about Panasonic with Shiv Verma. Stay tuned. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at BH Photo Video, hashtag BH Photo Podcast. Okay, we are back. Uh, Shiv, question for you. A bunch of questions for you on this one. You are using now the uh, the Panasonic, the S1R, and we are in the midst of the Panasonic sweepstakes, and we're giving away an S1. Um, tell us about the camera. You you basically were introduced to the system on the, when it was micro four-thirds, and now you've had an opportunity to use the same company, Panasonic, and their full-frame cameras. Um in addition to In addition the Micro Four Thirds. The micro four yes. thirds. So I, I'm still using the Micro Four Thirds system for all my wildlife work. For the reasons we said, longer lens throwing. Long, yeah. yeah, I mean, you've got, you know, the like 100 400, which gives you a reach of 200 800. Correct. Yeah. There's a 200 millimeter prime, which mm-hmm. is again an exceptional lens, f2.8, and that you can use with teleconverters. So you get that additional reach. Um, the 50 to 200, another exceptional zoom lens, um, again, can be used with tele-extenders. So you've got three very, very good lenses for any kind of wildlife photography. And so it's, I, it's I'm, manageable I'm, to yeah. carry. And I'm not giving up my gene for anything. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean the, the, the weight, the ability to you know carry... Long lenses and use that product for a whole day and not have your back giveaway. Uh, I'm not stopping that. No, it's a big issue. That's important <laughs> yeah. to me. I, I get that. I get that. Now, as far as, you know, macro work is concerned, um, again, the S-series don't have a true macro lens yet. Um, they will be at some point in the near future, particularly with the Alliance and Sigma making lenses for them. But uh, the, and I hate to use the term kit lens because it's not really a kit lens, it's an exceptional lens. The 24105. Mm-hmm. Which is the one we're going to be which giving is, away in our sweepstakes. Yeah, which is in your sweepstakes with the S1 body, is um, a half macro, as we call it. I mean, it's uh, half life size. Uh, may not have the same qualities as a macro lens because a macro lens typically is not a zoom lens. Correct. So, but it gives you the ability to get in really close and, you know, that's an advantage. Is it continuous to half-life size or do you have to flip a switch and be at a certain focal length to get there? Some, uh, no, there's, there's no switch. So it's continuous. Yes. Oh, that, that's yes. good. Yes. Okay. So you don't, you don't have to flip any switches and uh, that is a beautiful lens. It's, it's an F4, but it's F4 throughout mm-hmm. and that makes for most of your... Uh, what I would call general photography, it's it's an ideal lens. It covers that portrait range at 90 to 105, so you have a good portrait lens. Uh, clearly, the other lenses, the 50 millimeter, is an exceptional lens. Um, I think more and more I would call that a 50 millimeter reference because that's what that lens really is. The price point also is a reference point, mm. but uh, it's it's truly exceptional. And if 
you know, the person who's the... Sorry, could you explain that a bit? What do you mean by that when you say a reference lens? I mean, it's it's something that you could say measure other lenses by. I understand. Okay, gotcha. I guess. Okay. I guess. Um, so, so you have that. And then as far as the Panasonic lineup is concerned, the 70 to 200 is the third lens which will work with the S1. So based upon who the winner is and what their uh, <laughs> photographic expertise may be, these are the three lenses that are available today. Right. You also have a 1.4 and a times 2 tele-extender that can be used with the 70-200. to 200. Mm -hmm. The issue that you will run into is because it's an f4, the times two makes it an f8 lens, right. Right. and yeah. people may find the. It works fine under bright sunny days, and yes. as soon as it gets a little bit darker, past it, you know, yeah. about five, six, eight, autofocus and metering gets a little bit funky. You will you will lose some of the quote, quality of the lens because gotcha. of that. Mm -hmm. yeah. But with the one four, not a problem. And don't forget the image stabilization that are in these cameras too, yeah. which will make a big difference when you're getting well, that. Well, the image stabilization is the other thing. The G9 is a six and a half stop mm -hmm. image stabilization. Right. So at six and a half, you can handhold at shutter speeds that were not possible. And, and even with long lenses. Yeah, yeah. With the S series, um, your you know, five and a half stops is what you're getting today. Uh, maybe they'll be able to improve it with some firmware later, but today it's five and a half stops. Which isn't terrible either. <laughs> it's not <laughs> terrible. It's you know, great. I, 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 I go back to the time when we had no image stabilization. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah it was called the tripod. Yes, yes I remember. <laughs> so, so now you can handhold and do things like you weren't able to before. I mean, mm. think about it, even for macro work, that stabilization allows you to handhold and move your body to focus rather than have to set up a tripod because by the time you set up a tripod, that subject's gone. Yeah, or you knocked it off the flower <laughs> altogether right. setting up the tripod. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, and by the way, that's, that, that, that is a really good point because uh, if, if any of our listeners have never really tried macro, Getting up real close is it, it, that image jumps all over the place. It's mm -hmm. like holding a pair of binoculars and trying to watch something out in the distance. It's all over the frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell us about the S1 and, and in your case, the S1R. And uh, obviously, you know the, the, all the cameras from the system very well. What do you find that the you know in terms of the applications that you that you prefer? What, right. what do you use? That so for? there's 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 a few things. As far as resolution is concerned, mm -hmm. both the S1 and the S1R are extremely good as far as high-resolution images. Uh, you know, 24 megapixels, a 47 megapixel base resolution of the two cameras, but then you have the high-res mode, where they're using a concept of pixel shifting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in high-res mode, the first thing that happens is that your image stabilization goes off because they're going to use the stabilization mechanism to shift the sensor to create the higher resolution image. Mm -hmm. Okay. So don't expect to handhold, which would be crazy if right. you even tried to, uh, and, and do a high res image. Even with image stabilization or not? <laughs> there is no image stabilization. <laughs> so uh, you, you can get 80 megapixel images from the S1. You can get 187 megapixels with the um, S1R. And what I've noticed, I mean, a lot of people said, well, it's just pixel shifting, higher resolution, things go wrong. Things go wrong if you've got 
some subject matter that's moving. I also find just from using it with a Panasonic camera, you got to use a good heavy duty tripod. That's also use, part use of Use a good heavy duty or tripod or something. But if you use what's known as mode two, then the camera will compensate for subject that moves. Oh, okay. All right. So the G9 did not have mode two. So now in mode two, you can correct for some of that. It won't, it's not a hundred percent, but it's still far better than ever before. The, The key to it is that when you're using high res mode, what you will notice is not only is the resolution of the image better, the sharpness improves, but gradation of color. The dynamic, okay. Dynamic range, maybe a slight improvement. The I haven't color, really noticed, color is noticeable. but the color gradation is incredible. If you have, you know, varying color in the sky, the smoothness of that color range is just unbelievable. So that, that part is exceptional. The other features in the camera, I mean, the, the mode two, as I said before, which was, you know, uh, godsend because you know some leaves moving now it compensates for it the the other features that both the s1 and the s1r have is inbuilt time lapse Mm -hmm. which is you know for me let's talk about that great yeah Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, you've got pretty high speed burst for a full frame camera i mean a camera that's going to give you nine frames a second which you know is not easy with you know such a large sensor camera, six frames in continuous autofocus, and that's also great. Then you've got your video modes where you can do you know bursts. So the pre-burst concept, where when you press the shutter, or let's say when your shutter is half depressed and you're focused on a subject. The camera is buffering one second worth of images. So when you press the shutter, it retains the the one second before you press the shutter and a second after you press the shutter. Yeah. I use that on a, uh, another yeah. So, I mean, I, I've used this statement before is that, you know, Henri Cartier-Bresson looked for the decisive moment. Now you don't have to look for it. It's already there. <laughs> it was happening before you started shooting. Yeah, so. Yeah. so, you know, clearly, that, I mean, that, that type of thing. I, the whole idea is, in, is kind of a mind blower. When yeah, you I know. That, yeah, you're getting the photo before you actually push the shutter. You, you know, know? When, when, you, when you tell people, when you're out in the field, right, and they say, what are you doing? I said, I just did a pre-burst. What is that? I said, the camera took some pictures before I took the pictures. He said, What? You know, that's the kind yes, of reaction. Yes, we understand yeah. each other. Right. So, <laughs> so now, you know, people are getting more familiar with it, and that's a huge advantage. I mean, it, it, clearly a huge advantage for me. See, the, and tr- for, the for truth is, most people's reflexes aren't quick enough. So, what this does, it could often catch the picture that you thought you were taking to begin with. So, so you know, the other statement that we always made is, "If you saw it, you never took it." Exactly. Yes. Yes. Right? Well, the fact is, if you saw it, you already took it. Throwing <laughs> your fingers on right. so, 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 who, what kind of photographers, what applications are ideal for the S1 and the S1R? I realize they're different with the resolution and the size, but let's talk about the S1 for a second. What, what, uh, who would you recommend this camera for? Oh, I'd recommend it for people who like doing what I call hybrid photography. Generalists, as generalists. Yeah, right. yeah, I mean, it's you know, 
a landscape photographer's dream, right. a portrait photographer's dream, and a nature photographer's dream. Mm -hmm. And then if you're not a photographer, if you're a videographer, you got everything in there. Right. And with the free upgrades that they did with the vlog, mm -hmm. you have, you know. And can you, this is something we're not, I'm not so clear on either, but can you, can you kind of compare the S1 to the GH5 and the, that GH series, which obviously everyone has become to known as, you know, the video SLR, uh, is it comparable? Is it, can you get the same out of the S1 that you can out of the GH5? So you're getting 4K video, mm -hmm. right? The sensor size really has no difference as far as 4K video is concerned because the actual video is smaller than the sensor. Mm -hmm. But what does make a difference is how much information is being collected and then being pushed down into that, that 1920, 1080 if you're using HD or 4K. So basically, if you're doing full sensor readout, the quality of the image is going to be better. Mm -hmm. The five, the GH5 and the GH5S, mm -hmm. they have their own place in the video world. I mean, they're both exceptional cameras, small, easy to use. You don't really need a gimbal with those cameras because of the image stabilization being so good. However, with the GH5S, there is no stabilization. It was meant to be a video-centric camera for people who don't want stabilization. Automotive photography, cameras mounted on cars. You don't want image stabilization because it gets totally countered and the image quality deteriorates. And you so the destroy the camera images. mechanisms, yes. Sure. So in, in those situations, the GH5S is a very specific camera for certain types of video and also as a low light performer. It has dual native ISO. So that makes a huge difference. The GH5 to me is, I think any photographer who wants to do video should lean towards getting that because you can't get better. I mean, the, the S1 is great. But are you going to spend that much money just if you all, all you want to do is video? Because the S1 really is a photographer's camera. The S1R is a photographer's camera. It has all the video features, but if you're purely a video photographer or videographer, get the GH5. It's the best tool for the job. Best tool Without for the job. losing yeah. any of the image quality. Yeah. Do you do much in the way of video for yourself? Not a lot. I do it more for educational purposes. Okay. Um, I... I you know, teach video concepts, I teach vlogging, I teach uh, color management and things. But do I do a lot of video? No. Have I done some? Yes. But is that primarily what I do now? You st so you prefer telling the story in one frame? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. All right. Yes. <laughs> Can we talk a bit about the G95 then, which is the second camera in the giveaway? It has a 20 megapixel sensor. It's yeah. the same size sensor as the G9. It has exceptionally good video capability, and it comes with vlog. It has all the features that you want from a camera that can do video. It's got mic jack. It's got mm -hmm. HDMI out. It's got 422 external, 420 internal, 8-bit. If you want a camera that will do 
photography, videography, and you don't want to spend the money on getting a GH5, it's a generalist tool that is great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The G9, in my opinion, is truly a photographer's dream camera. Okay. The G95 is a hybrid photographer's best friend. <laughs> <laughs> well said. And you said that it was the, f the only or the first camera to bring in uh, yeah, the, the, the stacking? The, 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 the G95 has what's known as, um, it'll do a composite mm -hmm. in camera. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what it's basically doing is it's taking a sequence of images and compiling them into a single frame, not allowing the same area that has the most intensity of light to be duplicated and thereby get blown out. Okay. So it's great for doing things like star trails. It's great for doing night images of um, city scenes, mm -hmm. you know, where you want the car trails. Right. And you don't want the building right. lights to blow out just because you've got the exposure on for oh, so long. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's so it's, it's basically live composite. Mm -hmm. And is, is that a mode? That, it's a mode. It, and it takes a certain amount of images? Do, you, you, can that, set, you, you can set, set the interval, okay. you can set the number of exposures, interesting, yes. Interesting. Yeah. And, but is that offered in the other series cameras? No, this no, is, it's this the is only unique one that, to the G. So okay. far, it's the only one that has it. Oh, that's great. I don't know if any of the point-and-shoot cameras have the feature. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not that familiar mm -hmm. with the entire point-and-shoot line. But as far as a interchangeable lens camera, this is the first mm -hmm. one that has that. And we're going to be given, with the G95, we're giving away the 12 to 60 millimeter. What lenses would, do you recommend for this, this camera? And well, the 12 to 60 yeah. is a very good lens. Mm -hmm. Okay, Again, when you, when you provide cameras with good lenses, I think there should be a new term. They shouldn't be called kit lenses yeah. because kit lenses have a... A kind of a bad it's come connotation. A connotation right? yeah, yeah, but yeah. the 12 to 60 is basically your 24 to 120 exactly. equivalent. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it has reasonably good reach. It is pretty nice on the wide end. Your typical 24 millimeter wide is a good lens to have. Um, you can upgrade to the Leica lenses like the 12 to 60 Leica if you want, but I think you're nothing more than duplicating the focal range. But if you want to go wider, then I would suggest the 8 to 18 um, Leica, which will give you 16 to 36 millimeters. Beautiful for landscape photographers. That's pretty much everything you need for wide-angle photography. Yeah, it's right. all in one piece of glass. And if you are looking for... Using this camera as a nature camera for doing wildlife, then you have two options based upon what it is that you like to photograph. I'd go for the 100-400 Leica right away. But if you are not going to be doing that much as far as birds are concerned, more larger animals, mm -hmm. then the 50-200 to 200 is a perfect lens. And if you need to extend its reach, then buy the tele-extender. And, you know, you had mentioned a bit earlier the, uh, I, I guess it's called the L-Mount Consortium. Is that what it's called now? Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure, but can you explain that a little bit? And obviously we're talking about opening up the door to a, a range of great lenses from several manufacturers, all, you know, usable on the Panasonic series. So Micro Four Thirds was a sensor um, size. Mm -hmm. The Micro Four Thirds mount 
was the opening for where the lens goes. Mm -hmm. And you get micro four thirds lenses by Olympus, by Panasonic, by um, Blackmagic. So they, they all have a standard so lenses can be made to that standard. Now, the L-mount alliance basically takes the L-mount that Leica developed and because of the alliance now, Panasonic has an L-mount opening. Sigma has an L-mount opening with their new camera. And so does Leica. The SL and the T-mount cameras are all L-mount. So any lens that is an L-mount lens can be interchanged with anybody. Now, those folks who love the Leica lens look and the Leica lens quality but don't want to buy a Leica lens, uh, like a camera, can use those lenses on the Panasonic camera and vice versa. What Sigma is doing is basically opening up an opportunity for S1 and S1R photographers where Panasonic hasn't yet come out with the entire plethora of lenses right. that they do for the micro four thirds, is it's they're going to bridge with some of their really nice Art lenses. The art series, yeah. The art right. series is now recognized as truly quality. Mm -hmm. So now we have that opportunity to use those lenses. And I think the first one, which is not an art lens, I believe, it's the 45 millimeter has already been released. Okay. So the 45 millimeter is more like their contemporary series. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, I think, under $600. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas the art lenses are usually a thousand, two hundred to three hundred or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, I think by the end of August we should start seeing a number of these coming into the stores. So it opens up a very large number of lenses, and Panasonic doesn't go into that same situation where some of the other manufacturers, when they came out with their full frame cards had only three lenses and there was nothing more for right. practically two years. And do you know, was this part of, did Lumix, did Panasonic reach out to the companies and say, hey, we're going to be going forward with this. We need to get some lenses together. Let's work something out. Or was this something that... I'm uh, not sure as to what the internals were right. within the companies, but you know that Panasonic and Leica have been working exactly. closely yeah. for a number of years. Right. right. And... Um, there's, there's a lot of interchange of technology between both those companies. And I think bringing Sigma into the fray of, you know, lens camera relationship mm -hmm. is, is a good thing. I totally think yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and obviously the, the art series has kind of changed the game for Sigma. And uh, I, shoot, I shoot an art series now, you know, on my Nikon. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's definitely uh, makes a lot of sense. Well, don't get me yeah. wrong. It's yeah. not just the art series. Their contemporary mm -hmm. lenses are also very yeah, the good. sports series contemporary. Yeah, yeah exactly. In fact, yeah. I have uh, had the opportunity to try the 100-400 contemporary mm -hmm. on the S1. Mm -hmm. With the MC21 adapter. All right. Now, that's another another great thing. The being mirrorless, you can adapt DSLR lenses to mirrorless cameras because of the flange distance. Right. It gives you the ability to put an adapter. So the MC21 will let you mount any Canon lens to the S1 series. You may not get that. 
high-speed focusing, you may not get full image stabilization. EXIF information will go through, yes. I mean, aperture control, etc. But you may not get all the performance that you otherwise would. So it basically opens up every single Canon lens can be mounted on an S1. So now you've got a huge range of lens availability. Is there an adapter being made yet that will let you use the uh, uh, S lenses on the smaller G-series cameras uh, or micro four-thirds? Can you go back and forth between those two? No, no, I haven't seen any mention of that by anybody. You'd think that would almost be a natural. They want to, if, say you have both cameras, you want to use the larger lenses. Yes and no. Remember, the, the, the reason why you can use DSLR lenses is because... The distance between where the lens sits... The flange mount. The flange mm -hmm. mount yep. has room. Right. The micro four-thirds, because there is not much room, will limit your ability to take a mirrorless lens and mount it to a mirrorless gotcha. camera okay. because you would be moving the lens away. Right. And that's not always a good thing. Okay. Gotcha. Right. Uh, was there anything that uh, about the time-lapse time -lapse functions of the S1 or any of the Lumex cameras that we didn't so touch? Far, so far, I think, you know, from the very get-go with the GH3, I mean, time-lapse was an inherently built-in function. Mm -hmm. uh, the intervalometer was built in. Um, I have, and maybe this podcast is a good way to tell Panasonic that... We need a little bit more. Tell us about it. Go ahead. So, so, so the, the, the need of a little bit more would be for the camera to have an inherent ability to do bulb ramping. Uh. So with the variation of exposure, yeah. the camera compensates for it and adjusts right. mm -hmm. appropriately. So you know how to read the light. You have a meter. Now use that information and adjust Time Not points. hard to do. Not hard yeah. to do. Yeah, it can be done through a firmware update. What What is it about time lapse that you love so much, or that you love? Let's just put it that way, and, and as opposed to video or photography, still photography. For me, I think it's a tremendous educational tool, and and that's what I try and tell people. I mean, teachers, right? They they explain to children or to students. This is how a seed becomes a tree, becomes a plant, becomes a... They don't get it. They're not going to sit there and watch a seed sprout roots and grow. But if you can show that to them through a time lapse, it's instant gratification. They can, they, they'd see it happen. So where else and how else can you demonstrate that? All righty. Uh, websites, Instagram, people want to see more of your work. Where could they go? They can go through my website to all the uh, the other locations, but I have a Facebook page, um, again, linked to my website, Instagram linked to my website. Um, and the website and is? The website is my first name, last name, shivverma.com. Okay. And then uh, there's a lot of my work also on the Panasonic websites. Yeah, that, there's a lot of great which, work there. Uh, yeah. you know, again, I encourage people to not only see what I do there, but the rest of the ambassadors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have yeah. an absolutely wonderful team, 
And I think there isn't a single ambassador that I know who isn't also in some shape or form an educator. We all love to teach. So well, photography is about communicating. Yep. It's it just is. another it form. It is. It is. Yeah. Okay, That's, Shiv, thank you so much for joining us today. It was terrific talking with you. Welcome. And your work is wonderful. Thank anyway. you so much. Thank you for having me. And it's been a nice day to be out of the rain. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Come yeah. back sometime. Thank you. Thank All right. you. Would you like to be instantly notified every time a new show comes online? It's easy. All you have to do is subscribe to the B&H Photography Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, and Spotify. You can always find this on the B&H Explorer website, as well as the B&H Photography Podcast Facebook group. A box of donuts also says that if everybody you care about subscribe to the B&H Photography Podcast, the world will be a much happier, safer place. And you can quote me on that. And if you need a further incentive, don't forget, we are in the midst of the B&H Photography podcast panasonic lumix s1 sweepstakes and if you want to know how to get that camera all you have to do is follow the link in the show notes and you'll get all the information on how to win the new s1 or g95 for now and as always on behalf of jason john and myself thank you so much for joining us today 